Acts chapter 4, we finished half the chapter last time, and so we're going to proceed from there. So you can put your finger there. And once again, just ask a quick blessing. Never pray too much, amen? (laughs) Now, Heavenly Father, we do once again just bow our hearts and say, this is your God-breathed word sent from heaven. We need help by the Spirit to uh, understand it fully, to grasp it, and to put this truth into practice In Jesus' name, amen. Sunday afternoon, uh, I was home winding down, and I got a text from my daughter-in-law that said, uh, check out the Discovery Channel last Sunday afternoon, that would be. And there was Nick Walenda, who is a noted daredevil, and he was preparing for a walk over the Grand Canyon, 1,500 feet above the ground uh, upon a two-inch thick steel cable. And I'll just dim the lights and just show you a few of those shots. What's interesting, of course, that heightened the drama is that there is no safety harness at all. So here he is. He's making his walk. It took him, I don't know, something like 20 minutes. I'll tell you what, I, I just, I broke out into a sweat. Just watching him. I just was uh, amazed. And go ahead. The No safety harness. Now, he's seventh generation uh, circus people. And <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. Sorry. And uh, uh, the next one is a really cool shot. If you can see it. I'm sorry about the projector being out on Now, what appears to be a little cactus there actually is Nick walking high above. Do we have one more? Now, that's pretty amazing. That's the cactus shot for sure. All right, thank you for showing us that. There's one more, I think, the view that that's his view. I know, I know. Thank you for that. Well, Caitlin said... Well, I'm sure that this will one day become a sermon illustration for you when she was texting me. Well, there's no time like the present. Amen? Interestingly, a one-word theme that scholars have come up with for the book of Acts is boldness. It appears eight times throughout the book of Acts and, in fact, is the subject and central idea of chapter 4, the chapter that we're in, and the very topic of the paragraph or the text that we're looking at this morning. In fact, some of the editors will note in your Bible that break up the sections. This section is labeled the church prays for boldness, and we're going to talk about a biblical boldness today. Now, personally, I believe there are other adjectives other than just bold to describe what uh, Brother Nick did upon the tightrope there. Amen. There are other adjectives like crazy. (laughs) That's the first thing that came to my mind. Now, and if, if I were to counsel him, I would probably suggest another kind of hobby, uh, such as coin collecting, or, I, you know, if I would say something like, how about skydiving, he would say, without a parachute, you know, so, 
That said, no one really uh, can argue his fearless, bold approach to life, but biblical boldness, the kind of boldness and confidence that we're going to talk about this morning, which is key and indispensable to your Christian life, that is minus any unwise or presumptive daring because we're not to go looking for trouble. Uh, trouble does come looking for us. Amen. And so intimidation and threats and danger, mocking and persecution are the natural consequences of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because we do so in a world that is diametrically opposed to Jesus and the biblical truth. It's always been that way, and it always will be that way. And that's why they needed boldness. That's why they prayed for boldness. That's why they longed to be bold and confident, and that's why we need boldness. 2,000 years have come and gone. And the gospel is no more welcome here than when the Son of God, or God the Son, first delivered it and was despised, rejected, and nailed to a cross. So we're going to pick up where we left off in the middle of uh, Acts chapter 4. And here's what was going on if you missed last time. Peter and John are preaching the gospel. They, they healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, they healed a man who had been crippled all his life. Uh, they were arrested. And they spent the night in jail. They're hauled off uh, now to, to stand in front of the Jewish Supreme Court to answer before very angry men, most intimidating I mean, they're the wealthiest, most powerful, most feared men in all of Israel. And here are these three guys, Peter and John, and our new brother in the Lord, the lame man who was healed, standing in a semicircle, 72 men in the circle, and those three men standing out front like we saw last week, 72 scowling rulers' faces, Uh, those three, those Christian men, the object of their fury. And instead of shrinking back and shuffling back and forth and looking down at the ground and saying like 27 ums in the first one minute, they don't do any of that. The Bible says they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus told them, you will be my witnesses. You will be testifying. In fact, remember what he said? He said, uh, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what you will say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, we know the Holy Spirit resides, and apparently they are a package deal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, now residing within them, giving them the confidence, the wisdom, and the boldness to present the truth with their transformed life. And so what happens is it's time to be a witness. So Peter says to them, hey, this miracle was done in the name of Jesus the one you crucified, the one God raised from the dead, who's alive and healed this man. Uh, You've rejected the author of life, and that's too bad because if you ever want to go to heaven, it's going to have to be through Jesus and Jesus' name alone because no other name under heaven has been given to mankind by which we must be saved. And with that, you know, the Bible says, well, 
interesting to me that it was their boldness, something that they weren't trying to do, that captivated these guys' hearts. What did they say? They said, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized these guys weren't educated, they were ordinary guys, they were astonished and took note, made the connection that these guys had been with Jesus. You see what I'm saying is that the winning combination was God's word with a transformed life. It was the transformed life that they commented on. What they were astonished was, it's very important that they spoke the word of God, and they did. But what they remarked about was the life change of these two ordinary guys who could come in and school them with such skill and eloquence and poise and and passion and reserve. They were were amazed. And so they looked at that boldness. They they linked it to Jesus' kind of authoritative way of speaking. No one ever spoke like Jesus. Remember in John 7, I've called this to mind several times, when the temple police went to arrest Jesus. And they came back uh, empty-handed to this very same semicircle. And they said, where is he? And they said, have you heard him speak? No one has ever spoken like him before. Well, now they have three other little Christs, Christians, who are speaking with that same spirit, that same conviction, that same anointing, we call it, that that thing, that power and poise and confidence, and that's what really uh, catches their attention. And so what it, it says, they, they didn't know what to do. That's where we leave, left off. The men were without recourse. They said the crowds loved them. The crowds are praising God. Everybody knows the crippled guy. We can't deny that everybody knows that he was lame. They saw his withered legs. What what can we do? So they said, let's just threaten them with their lives. And they did. And then this bold response we saw last week. Well, we're going to have to choose to obey God rather than you. We can't help telling about everything we have seen and heard. You know, it was kind of foolish to expect a guy who was raised up, you know, he'd been lame all his life, and then in the name of Jesus gets a new life, and they tell him, well, shh, you can't tell anybody. You know, we don't mind you walking around with your new legs, but just don't tell anybody how you got those new legs. You know, uh, they said no can do, and we're going to have to... uh, Submit ourselves to God. So with further threats, they released them, and now we're picking up in the middle of that incident. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, interesting, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Then they quote a couple of verses from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord. And against his chosen or anointed one. That word there means Christ or Messiah. Verse 27, they're still praying. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles 
and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Uh, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now with that, that is going to be our text to reflect on this morning. Just incredible, invaluable insights of how the church responds in a hostile world. How to be obedient when you're being intimidated in the culture in which you live. And so, you know, I see three things in this little section. Number one, if you're taking notes, a hostile response. Number two, a fervent prayer And number three, an answer from heaven. So let's take a look at this, a hostile response. Well, first of all, it's the need for boldness comes because of the response of hostility. Now, that remains constant. It's always going to be that way. It always will be that way. It always was that way. Uh, Because of the opposition, it it never goes away. The opposition, the threats, the intimidation comes with the territory of the new life. When you are born again, you are born again from above and you become a citizen of heaven, as the Bible calls it, uh, as uh, contrasting with the citizens of this earth. And the two groups are separate. They always will be separate, and they always will be at odds with one another. And what happens here is is that the Lord takes you out of one group and puts you in the other. And when you come to faith, you wake up in the company of those who believe, who surrendered their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have uh, pledged allegiance to him and to his truth. And there's the other group that does not and does not want anything to do with him. Now, Jesus kind of warned them, listen, you're going to need boldness because there's opposition. In John 15, I have a scripture there for you. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world But I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. So there are two groups. And God comes and he takes the believer and he transfers them over to what is called the kingdom of light. The kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness are opposed to one another. Nothing you can do about that. There's no changing that. The sheep go to the right. The goats go to the left. That's the way it is. And, you know, in fact, we're defined as ecclesia, which is meaning the church. And what that means, it comes from two words, kaleo, to call, and ek, to come out of a group. So to come out of a group and to be called by the voice of God, God calls us his sheep. He says, my sheep know my voice. We hear the voice, we believe, and we follow him out of 
the kingdom or group of darkness into the kingdom of light. Two kingdoms. There's, that's how God sees it. And, and there's nothing that we can do about that. We're born into the middle of an ongoing feud. Boldness is always needed because the nation, the nature rather of Jesus' mission never changes. Now, what did Jesus say about this? He said, now, he tried to clear things up, and he said, don't get me wrong. I'm a great polarizer. Because of me, people will be divided. And uh, there's a scripture here. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a son against his father, a daughter against her mother, and so on. And uh, he's quoting Micah chapter 7, verse 6, by the way. A man's enemies will be members of his own household, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't change it. He said, uh, you, you know, you could look at that and say, Jesus, that's not very nice. You know, he's just saying, listen, uh, usually when the Lord comes into somebody's life, it makes them a better husband and a better son and so on. Right. But the presence of Christ may also divide and not unite as we all have seen. And he said, just just don't misunderstand. It's not peace at any cost. It's peace through me and me alone. And then you're just kind of stuck with the truth here. Then he follows up that tremendous statement right after that. He says, and if anyone loves their father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If anyone loves their son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. Whoever does not pick up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life and will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So what is he saying? He's saying, oh, please, don't try to fix that. Because if you try to fix that by changing the way that you relate to me or changing the truth that's causing the division, you're going to be in a bigger mess than what's happening with your estrangement because you will dishonor the son, you see. Now, our allegiance, my allegiance is to the Lord, my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, and to his holy word. Come with me. Come with me. Though none go with me, so I will follow. And I'm not going to change his message or my allegiance to him because some find it difficult to come on board. Uh, People go right, people go left, and that's what Jesus said. Really what he's saying is allegiance to me will cause the most profound division and hurtful separations you could ever imagine. Don't you even try to fix that. The only way you fix that is through love and respect and to, with a clear anointed message of the truth of the gospel. That's how you fix that. But there's no other way. The temptation, of course, uh, James, who is Jesus' half-brother... Um, he said, don't you realize that friendship, I have a scripture on this, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Another difficult passage to understand. 
Jesus was very friendly, and he expects us to be friendly people, of course. But as one writer wrote, obviously God wants us to be friendly toward unbelievers. James is warning, however, against a morally compromised friendship when believers take away the offensive truths of the gospel for the sake of being well-received and avoiding tension or rejection because of Jesus. So Jesus was a, a friend to sinners, but he never compromised the truth. You know, people love to bring up the story of how Jesus didn't judge the woman in adultery. But then he says to her, Go your way and leave your life of sin. How dare you judge her and tell her how to live her life and what's right and what's wrong? Oh, her life was a life of sin. Oh, they always leave the last part out. He judges her. He says, man, you were a sinner. Now leave it. You've come to me. Let my love and my life change you. And so who wouldn't be uh, intimidated by this message? So the, 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 the disciples, Peter and John, come back to the group and they're telling them, you know, I can just hear Peter. They let us tell them about Jesus. They realized we were like Jesus and they commanded us not to tell others about Jesus. And then their hearts sunk. You know, people are, are tempted. Well, let's make friends with them. You know, they're going to get in the way of us making money. They're going to ruin our businesses. They're going to arrest us. They crucified our Lord. What are they going to do to us? Let's be friends with the world so that it will go better for us. And that's what James is warning us about. But you don't see any panic. What do you see? You see prayer. This is a beautiful thing. They don't... uh, they don't give way to their anxieties. They, verse 24, when they heard the report, they lifted up their voices together in prayer to God. So what have we seen? We've seen first a hostile response, which is the need for boldness. And now we have a fervent prayer, number two, a fervent prayer, which is the source of boldness. All right? So the reports are in, and instead of saying Houston, we have a problem, they say Jerusalem, we have a problem. We have a dilemma. Let's take it to the Lord in prayer. Here's their dilemma. They know what God expects. The Lord made it very clear. I want you to be, you are my talkers. You're my witnesses. You are my testifiers. Your primary job is to speak the truth in love, to bring the message to a lost and dying world. The message saves. That's your number one job, is to live your life, live, live the gospel, and to proclaim the gospel, right? So they know what they have to do. They know what the council wants. You are not to speak. You are not to be his witnesses. You are not to share the good news, And they know they must obey God and ignore the rulers. So they feel the weight of the the intimidation. They sense the danger. These guys are dangerous. You've got to imagine the police coming in here with guns. You've got to imagine FBI agents surrounding the place. You've got to imagine the the police officers and the, the lights flashing and somebody coming up to the pulpit and telling you and pointing at you and saying, listen, Christians, We know who you are. You know what? You think you're going to work tomorrow morning? 
We got some information about you. We're going to make your life really miserable and difficult. All this Jesus, Jesus, Jesus stuff, which they do in many, many countries today. Then what? We can't feel that yet. We feel a little bit of it. But just feel that so you can feel what they were thinking when they get the news. They want to kill us. They want to beat us up. They want to throw us in jail if we keep talking about Jesus. What do they do? They don't even talk. They hear the report and look at the text. Love the immediacy, the reflex of the early church. Got a problem? Let's pray. They hear the report and lift their voices right away. There's no discussion. There's nobody saying, none of that. Sorry, some of you recognize that whine there. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) So Daryl Bach, a commentator, uh, put it this way. Their dire situation leads them immediately to express their dependence on God in prayer They know that God is stronger than their enemy and that without pursuing God's will, their efforts will be wasted. And so what I love is that reflex, you know, the problem and then boom, prayer. Now, I've heard this kind of sentiment out there. We've tried everything. We've reached the end of our own resources. You know, finally, we just had to just pray. Did you catch that? Let me repeat it for you. All right. We've tried everything. We've gone here. We've done that. We've called him. We've called her. We've got a friend over here. we got this. we got that. We, we've reached the end. You know what? We just had to put it in God's hand and pray. Maybe if we reverse the order of that conversation that we might have uh, had better results. Now, I had a youth pastor who just hammered this truth into me and the entire youth group. Uh, I would have a problem. I would call him. I'd have a question. Somebody would ring the doorbell and want to tell me about the kingdom that's coming. And I'd be on the phone. And he would say, have you called the Lord? Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you gone to God in prayer? So always asking before you go to the doctor, before you go to the counselor, before you call mom and dad, before you call a friend, for a listening ear or some good advice. Do you just instantly, when you have your problem, you think, oh, oh no, what am I going to do? What if, what if, what? I'm going to have to do this, call that person, fix this. How about just reflecting your anxiety up to heaven and casting your cares upon the Lord? I just, you, Lord, Psalm 86, you, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all that call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Now, Psalm 20, where, where uh, David says, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. But you know what? We, we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. What is he saying there? Is he saying, hey, I don't depend on a good horse, a fast horse, or a chariot? No. He needs them. He depends on them. But he, he's not a fool to, to think that his success comes from a good, strong horse or the chariot. It's the Lord behind such things that really matters. Amen? Amen. Observe yourself in your next uh, crisis or your next difficulty or your current difficulty um, 
May I suggest that you will get more done dropping to your knees rather than picking up your phone. Amen? The prayer itself is wonderful. It's from verse 24 to 30. It's just invaluable. Uh, If you want a model uh, of prayer when you're kind of pressed, this is your prayer. It's unbelievable. I I came up with four Ps just to make it easy for you, you know, and for me. Uh, They remind themselves of things. This is kind of a reminder in their praying of God's power, the prophecy, the plan of God, and then the plea. So let's take a look at that. They remind themselves of God's power. So first thing, you know, it's very interesting because the Sanhedrin is pulling a power play on them. So immediately they want to remind themselves of the power of God. Who's in charge? So when you have a problem or a challenge, the first thing you ought to do, even in your prayers, is to acknowledge who's got the real power. Who's got the real power? That's important to know, right? Lord, you're God. You made the heavens. You spoke, and the sun and the stars and the moon appeared. You created the earth out of nothing. Everything we see, you made. And every person, you are in full control. The sea, the oceans, your idea, and everything in them exists because of you. Once we establish the unlimited power of God and the unparalleled scope of his control, everything's downhill from there. Lord, you've got the power. So when you have a problem, if you acknowledge, like Jesus' perspective, Pilate is standing before him, a big problem. Pilate says to him, okay, tell me the whole story. Where are you from now? And Jesus ignores him says not a word and Pilate says "Uh, you ignoring me (laughs) I don't think that's a good idea because maybe you don't realize that I have the power to release you or to crucify you and Jesus says no you don't you'd have no power except it were not given you from heaven so sir no you don't have the power that's why I'm not talking to you you didn't say all of that but The 72 guys have no power. Uh, uh, Whatever it is that's standing in front of you isn't more powerful than God. The Lord is God. Is anything too difficult for him? Now, the word for Lord that they use when they say, okay, first of all, God, you're the Lord. You're sovereign God. All right. The word for Lord is not the usual word there for Lord. It's the word in the Greek despotes, where we get the word despot from. And the the Greek is lacking of the negative connotation of the English word despot. All right. What the Greek word means is uh, master, that everybody else is slave, that he's in full control and he's the one in charge of the universe. So that's what they do. They say, hey, you, God, you made everything. You spoke the universe into being. You own the universe, and you own all the people on the planet. Now let's continue from there. That's just a wonderful insight, I think. Uh, Secondly, they say, we know who has the power. Now let's look at the prophecy, but when you have a problem to pray 
in light of the word of God. When you have a problem, your prayers should reflect that you have a knowledge of scripture and what God has to say about the thing in question. Does that make sense to you? So they're thinking, here we got rulers, religious rulers, who are telling us, we don't like you, Jesus. We don't want you talking about him. Silence, we beat you up, all right? Now, what are you going to do with that? Where do we see that in the scriptures? Ah, Lord, we know, let me paraphrase, Lord, this opposition is nothing new to you. It's old news. A thousand years ago, but through the Holy Spirit, David spoke, predicting this very thing. Rulers like Herod and Pilate and the guys you've given us a hard time, uh, they're doing exactly what you predicted they would do. They're banding together against you and against us. How useless is that to fight against the Lord and his will? So that's really the essence of Psalm 2, is the fruitfulness of opposing God. You know, if if I were writing a bumper sticker, I would write one like, is it wise to rebel against your maker? I I mean, honestly, it doesn't make sense. Psalm 2 is really, Psalm 2 is really saying you're fighting against God? Seriously? That's the the nuance of Psalm 2. It doesn't make sense. Remember I told you about the stop sign in Sebastopol? Uh, years ago, and every time I drive by it, it make me laugh. Somebody spray painted on the stop sign. It says stop, and then underneath it, it says God. So stop God, and it just made me laugh so hard every time. I just roll my head and just go, really? Seriously? Somebody's going to think that they can stop God. Yes. Yes, they do. Revelation, the end of the world. So not only is Psalm 2 fulfilled with Herod and Pilate and the rulers at his first coming, there's a double significance here. At his second coming, Revelation 19, it says the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider of the horse and his army, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. He appears, and the kings of the earth and their armies fire on him. Psalm 2. Seriously? That's not wise. You don't have very good odds of winning. You see, but they find their situation in the scriptures. They say, this is nothing new. Let's, let's, so when we pray, oh, by the way, can I say this? I throw this in for free, as I like to say. Listen, what a beautiful shout out to the divine origin of the Old Testament right here. What does the prayer say? It says, you, God, the Father, spoke through your Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, and said, and then he quotes Psalm 2. Ah. Oh. You, God, spoke through your Holy Spirit through the mouth and pen of King David. Oh, there are teachers today, folks. Low view of Scripture, low view of the Old Testament. But what does the apostle Peter pray, or this group of Christians, what are they praying? They're saying, God Almighty's voice through Psalm 2 speaking to us. 
Do not pay attention to anybody who has a low view of the Word of God. Because once you have a low view of the Word of God, anything's possible. There goes your anchor, your measure for all truth. For all Scripture is God-breathed and is used to show us the standard for what's right and what's wrong, for, for rebuking, for correcting, for encouraging that we might be fully equipped to do the will of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Amen? All right. So, when you have a problem, you know, be nice to pray. Lord, you know, I know your word says that you'll supply all my needs. So, in this time of need, see, I know, Lord, what your word says about vengeance, that it belongs to you. Therefore, with this struggle of me wanting to get back at this person... Since I know what your word says, Lord, that's what they're doing. They're taking their problem, they're putting in the context of the word of God and praying it. Pray the word of God because that's where you're going to find the answers, amen? So we've seen uh, them acknowledge God's power in the prayer and then pray in light of God's word and then finally they acknowledge that God's plan prevails. Now this is kind of the best part paraphrase this part of the prayer it says these men who oppose you and now us are fulfilling your great purposes everything is going exactly as you planned everything is right on schedule you're way ahead of this game it's you not them calling the shots as you see fit they are just puppets on a string now that's just an incredible way to look at it look at what they say they say, you, all this is coming down the way you ordained it to happen. And yet they are still responsible because he's leading and he's sovereign and they're choosing and it comes together. They are still culpable. They're responsible. And yet he's in full control. David Guzik on this, per, on this verse says, this brings real peace, knowing that God's will will prevail knowing that he has a plan that whatever comes my way has passed through God's hands first and he will not allow even the most wicked acts of men to result in permanent damage so the prayer summarized is God you have the power not them so we can be encouraged Lord this is how your word says it will be so we can deal with it and Lord, number three, your plan will prevail so we can be at peace. And so here comes the plea now, all right? So they say in such a wonderfully tender way, Lord, listen to what they're saying they want to do to us. Lord, listen to this. Take it to heart. They're awful threats. Give us the boldness to keep on going even though, even though, to keep speaking your word. Keep on transforming in miraculous ways, hearts and lives, uh, through Jesus' name. And by the way, they call Jesus God's servant. Jesus is God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. However, he is the Father's servant to serve the world 
in salvation and bringing eternal life. So you don't see that phrase as, as a kind of a subordination of Jesus, although he, he, he voluntarily humbles himself under the will of the Father, uh, but he is God the Son. And so we've seen a hostile response, a fervent prayer, and now an answer from heaven. Uh, the God-inspired confidence and boldness that they're looking for. I love this. Verse 31, after they finish their prayer, there's an earthquake that shakes the entire place where they're at, and they all get what they're asking for. And I see that they get about three things that they really need. Now, first of all, they get confirmation. Now, uh, the earthquake, I believe, is God's way of saying, listen, I know you're scared. I know you're shook up. I know they just crucified my son just 60 days prior. I know you guys are worried. Listen, I've heard your prayer. Just want you to know. Can you imagine the, I don't know, the peace that flooded their hearts? If you were concerned, oh, no, those men, they're going to, oh, no, right? And then the place just trembles as soon as you say, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the place goes, you know. For me, I see that as God is so pleased with them. It's like, oh, man, in light of this, they start praying to me, praising me for my power, submitting to the will of God, saying, hey, we don't care. We know what we got to do, and we're going to do it. We just pray one thing. Help us through, oh, Lord. And God just says, I want to hug you all. And that's what I think happened. As when God hugs, you know, the building <laughs> kind of shakes like that. <laughs> that's how I pictured. I just think he just wants to just squeeze them all up, and uh, that's what happened. Now, I also think it's symbolic. I believe he's saying, listen, let, we're going to shake things up here down to the core. You know, that's really scriptural. In Hebrews, it says, uh, now, when God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well. This means that all creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Now, Peter tells us about that, right? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear. The heavens, sun, moon, and stars. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Second Peter chapter three, verse 10, the verse from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26. And now what did John tell us when he got the glimpse of the end of the world? He says, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Revelation 6 and 14. So yeah, there's some shaking that comes with the gospel. They're going to shake. And whatever isn't tied down to him is going to be removed. How about you? He's going to shake it. It's coming. Are you going to be standing after the shaking. It's all about the one who does the will of God shall, shall abide forever, doing God's will. 
They're also filled with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it's not just a one-time thing. We're to be filled continually with the, with the Spirit. Uh, this idea of being filled with the Spirit isn't so much more a quantity of God, like you get more of God, because I just think God comes in by His Spirit and He's within, right? I think when you're filled with the Spirit, it's the grace for God to have more of you. It's not you having more of God, but God having more of you. So it's kind of like the grace to yield completely, your will to his will. Kind of a fuller surrender or a deeper devotion or love or a heartier obedience. That's what I would say happens. And when that happens, he manifests in these beautiful ways, like the boldness, that we were praying for, or they were praying for, that we need to pray for. Notice how it's manifested by speaking the word of God. So let's end by talking about what they got. They got boldness. He gave them the boldness. But notice that they were, the answer to the prayer was being filled with the spirit, not the thing itself. But because they yielded more to God, they got the answer. Because God is really, when we have more of God, we have everything we need, right? And so they have this boldness. Now let's talk about it. As I said, it appears eight times. It's something that you really need. You really need this. I really need this. Because we live in a time that's so intimidating to share the gospel. And that's the very thing that we're called to do. Now, the word in the Greek for bold has three ideas. One, a freedom in speaking. Now, it doesn't mean like freedom of speech. It means you are free of inner conflict so that you can speak the truth in love freely. In other words, there's nothing in you going, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should. What if I say this? Oh, no. If I say this, then they'll say that. You're just free. That, that the question comes, it doesn't matter whose face it is or what situation you're in, The truth is the truth, and with diplomacy and grace, love and respect, you're able to deliver freely, with peace, the truth, unaltered. It's a freedom there. Also, to be bold, it has the nuance of not holding back or hesitating. It also has the nuance of a fearlessness and a confidence so that it really doesn't matter what's on the line. If you do speak the truth, you will speak the truth regardless of the reaction or the reception. Because in this day and age, when you start talking about the gospel, it's really not well Received, And so uh, it's the confident ability to speak the word of God in the face of intimidation without compromising. Now, interesting that the word doesn't have anything to do with volume. It doesn't have anything to do with being an extrovert. Nothing. It doesn't have anything to do with a dramatic, socially awkward uh, testimony. It's day-to-day confident assurance, a peace and a poise to be able to answer with the truth regardless of what will happen by you saying the truth. So it's day-to-day living just with the peace to be able, when you're asked a question that's intimidating, what does the Bible say about gay marriage? 
since that's what everybody's talking about this entire week. Landmark uh, decisions made. What does the Bible say about that? We have to have an answer. You'll have to be bold. Because if you're not bold, if you don't have freedom in your speaking, if you're uh, holding back or hesitating, uh, you're going to give the wrong answer. The Bible's really clear. I want to show you the scripture out of Romans. And why do I want to do that? Because it's just getting harder and harder to speak the truth in love about this topic. If you only had one scripture in the entire Bible to take a stand on, there are seven, eight, or nine of them. But let me just give you one, all right? We're going to look at that together, Romans Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans 1, 24 through 27. Nobody hates anybody. Nobody wants to persecute anybody. Nobody wants to exclude anybody. But if I'm asked the question... What does God think of gay marriage? What does the Bible say? Number one, I say this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. He said he affirmed that marriage is between a man and a woman. He said, from the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, Matthew 19 and verse 4. So it is really erroneous to say that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. He did, by affirming what biblical marriage is, and he did that in Matthew 19 and verse 4. Why do I go through this? I mean, I can feel the tension in the room, because this truth divides you either are going to go well what does that really mean and you know i've heard that that doesn't really mean what it says it means you know uh, you know what when you start playing around with that you're going to make anything say whatever you want it to say and there are way more scriptures than that one so it divides and now not only are you going to have to be bold in the world not only with this subject but with the whole gospel understanding of you're a sinner There's a right way and a wrong way. There's an absolute truth. There's only one way to get to heaven. It's through Jesus. All of these things, not just sexuality, but all of these things are now uh, under attack. And you're going to have to have the boldness to be able to calmly, collectively, with peace, with respect and, and dignity for all, to be able to say, this is the way God created things. This is the way it works. God loves everybody. I mean, I have three little things here that just say, you know, very easily, 
You don't have to make it very complicated. God loves people with same-sex attraction. The gospel is for everyone. When we're born again, we are new. Born again people abstain from sin. And so when somebody asks if the Bible says, what about homosexuality? The answer is this. Any sexual expression outside of husband and wife is sin. Those are unbelievably difficult things to say even this morning and I'm getting irritated with my own self right now because I'm so afraid of saying these words that are so clearly understood in the scriptures this whole world is going that way so not only are you going to have to be bold not just about the issue of sexuality but about old school gospel truths about heaven and hell and sin and Jesus being the only way. Now, not only are you going to get pressured from the world, and listen to me, you're going to be pressured by evangelical Christians. You are going to be divided. And the church is already split over not only sexuality, but over all of the things I've been talking about, about the nature of man being sinful, about Jesus being the only way, about the authority of the word of God. All of these things are being preached against in churches that want to be enlightened and more user-friendly, to be more friendly. Jesus said this, in the Sermon on the Mount, beware, beware when men speak well of you. Be on your guard because that's what they did with the false prophets of old. What the false prophets of old did was take away all the judgment, all of the right and wrong, all of the condemnation or conviction for about sin and took all of that away so that men would speak well of them and like them, and they would increase their popularity. Same thing's happening now. You know what? It's not very popular to say these kinds of things in this kind of environment. You know what? But it's okay if men don't speak well of you, because Jesus said that's okay. That's all right. The truth will divide and polarize, and people are going to make a decision. What we need is boldness, to be able to know the scriptures, to believe the scriptures, to guard the gospel, because the message, the Bible says the message is what saves. If you mess with the message, you mess with the mission. You mess with people missing heaven because you're telling them, oh, that's okay. Well, what does that really mean? We don't know. Can you, we really know what the scriptures really say? That's the new thing. We can know. God is very capable of making himself and his truth very clear to his children by the power of the Holy Spirit and the clear-cut gospel that's there for us all. So our prayer as a church, that we have boldness, that we speak the truth in love, and that we don't give way, that his word is an anchor and his Holy Spirit keeps us strong in the midst of all these voices that look so wonderful and sound so friendly and so enlightening. Be careful because we live in that world that wants to accumulate teachers to say what their itching ears want them to say. So we're going to stick with the truth and ask God to keep us bold. Now let's close with the picture of our brother 
He is a brother. You know how I know this? You can dim the lights here and just hit one of the pictures with Brother Nick. So he's on the line, and if you watched it, the audio, (laughs) he's saying the whole time, thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, you are God. You are my king. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. You are my Savior. I love you, oh God. I was thinking, I've been waiting for him to say, and now I come to you. <laughs> I, I come to you. I come to you in prayer. No, don't say that. Um, I was thinking, you know what? First of all, I was really surprised right from the start. He took a step out and looked down and said, I love you, Lord. It was like, yeah, I would probably say the same thing. I was also happy. I was so happy that, you know, if the wind blew too hard, you know, he'd be in good standing <laughs> later with the Lord. <laughs> and I started thinking, even though, you know, I think, you know what I think about this, like most people think, you know. However, if I'm going to apply it spiritually, I would say when you're born again, you kind of get put on the wire with, with because you've got a lot to lose. You got a lot to lose. Your reputation, your business, your ability to make money, the size of your church, there's a lot, the income of your church, legal issues. Once things go, there'll be legal issues and discrimination issues. You can visit me in jail, it's all right. And if you do visit me in jail, would you bake me a cake and put one of those files inside? And just, just so I could, just like in the movies. Okay, let me get back to this guy. All right, every step. He's got a safety harness. We do, rather. He doesn't. We've got the safety harness that neither life nor death nor angels or powers or principalities or things present or things in the future can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is irrelevant for us. Taking away our jobs, uh, splitting the church, come what may. We speak the truth and we take each step. Thank you, Jesus. I love you, Lord. You are my king. Keep me strong. Praise you, Lord. Help me with this wind. May the wind die down. This is what he was saying. That's what he was saying. In fact, he was commanding the wind in Jesus' name. I had a little bit of a problem with that. But you know what? If I were up there, I'd be, I'd be commanding. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we do want to take every step of our journey in the name of Jesus, praising our God and looking to you. There is a lot on the line. Lord, I just think of the scripture that through the so-called foolishness of what is preached, you save, that we are saved by, by the word of God, hearing the message, and we just want to be true. And come what may, Lord, though none go with me, still I will follow, and Love you with all our, our, our hearts and stand with you, Lord. Keep us bold and keep working and transforming lives in miraculous ways through the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.